Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. On that note, let's open our Bibles not to John, but to Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we left off last week. We're taking a little break from our series through John, and Reuben preached a wonderful sermon last week on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, about walking worthy of our calling. And just in God's providence, this Sunday, I want to take some time to look at a few verses, just a few verses after the verses that Reuben led us through last week, verses 11 through 16, which we'll get to in a moment. And the reason that I am doing a standalone sermon today is because, and we're taking a little break from our series in John, is because uh, I will be uh, out of town the next couple weeks. Uh, I and my family are going to my home country of California (laughs) for uh, Thanksgiving, and we're really excited about that. It's been uh, a little bit of time since the whole family's been able to go and see my folks and my side of the family. Uh, We have rented a tiny little Airbnb for all six of us, plus a daughter-in-law and a girlfriend, and so we're going to be crammed tight in a little house in downtown San Diego, which uh, is an opportunity for sanctification. (laughs) So we're... We're thrilled about that, but uh, Robert will be preaching next week, and then Joseph Davis will be preaching the Sunday after Thanksgiving that I'm really excited about hearing from Joseph. And this morning, we're going to look at, kind of do a little bit of a fireside chat, if you will, about our life together as a local church. Um, I'm I'm getting uh, at the age, I've always been a little bit sentimental, it's just my nature, but I'm, I'm getting even more sentimental now that I'm uh, soon to be a grandfather. And uh, I just think about things. I think about this church. I think about our history together. I think about the 16 and a half years that we have been a church. And I'm so filled with gratitude for you and for what the Lord has done through us. And on a Sunday like today, when we're taking a little break from a sermon series through the Gospel of John, I think it might be appropriate for us to just do a little bit of encouragement and self-examination and for me to give you a pastoral word about where we are as a church. So along those lines, uh, I want us to look at what I think is one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament in regards to what it looks like to be a local church together. Now, Reuben preached such a wonderful sermon, and um, when Reuben preaches, I just want him to just keep preaching. There's just some, there's a sweet authority about our dear brother, and, uh, and, but I am glad that he didn't continue on into verses 11 through 16. But what we're going to look at today is this picture of what it means to be a local body together. Now, before we look, just put your thumb in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, and just consider Jesus's ministry through the gospels that we're going through now in John, but we see obviously articulated for us in in the first gospel, Matthew uh, chapter 28. At the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, he has 
lived his life. He has ministered for three years. He's done uh, so many miracles that in the Gospel of John that we will eventually get to, it says at the end of the Gospel of John, that Jesus did so many miracles and so many good works that if we were to write them all down, there aren't enough books in the world that can contain them. And he goes to the cross and he lays down his life as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me to redeem us from our sin, to make us new, make us alive, to give us new life. And then he ascends victoriously as the reigning victor over all things. And before his ascension at the end of Matthew chapter 28, just look at this picture of what he tells us as a church to do in verse 18. This is the great commission. Jesus came and said to them, those that were gathered there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So friends, know that there's nothing in this world that in some way is not under the sovereign, complete control of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are reigning even over the most chaotic situation, the most chaotic government, the most chaotic virus, the most chaotic financial market. He is sovereign over all. And that sovereign risen king before he ascends tells us, his church, in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, not just all political nations, but all all people types, all ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so he tells his disciples to go, preach the gospels, make disciples, and 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 teach those disciples all the words that I have given you through the prophets and the apostles. And then if we're to fast forward before we get to Ephesians, or actually after Ephesians, but before we settle down in Ephesians chapter four, we read in 1 Timothy three, this word to this young pastor. And Paul is giving this letter to this young pastor, Timothy, who is actually pastoring the church at Ephesus. And he now further crystallizes for us where and what he's to do and where this this mission is to reside, who this mission is for. It's for the local church, for the people of God. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy in verse 14 of chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so notice how he describes the local church, the church at Ephesus, the church at Crosspoint, that we are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We're holding something up. We, we serve a function, ultimately not for ourselves, but to hold up the truth of the gospel of how men can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, which gets us to Ephesians. And before we settle down in Ephesians chapter four, let me just mention a verse that Reuben alluded to as he so wonderfully explained, just in summary form, the, 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 the heart of Ephesians, how it starts off with the gospel and what God has done and then finishes off with the next few chapters of what then we must do in light of what God has done. But in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter three, there's this wonderful picture where the apostle Paul is saying, this mystery has been given to me, this mystery of the gospel, that God is reconciling people to himself, Jews and Gentiles, people that would never otherwise be reconciled in one body. But the gospel has broken down the barrier between a holy God and sinful man. And that barrier that was broken down between 
between us and God has put us together in a family. So now people that would have no business with each other are together. This is the beautiful consequence of the mystery of the gospel. And this is what Paul says about what the church, the mission of the church should be to an onlooking world. In verse 10, he says that because of this church, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And so places like Crosspoint are God's intention to actually think about this, make his manifold wisdom known, not the seven wonders of the world, not the greatest architectural accomplishment of mankind, not the greatest natural wonder, although all of those things to some degree point to God and his glory, but his manifold wisdom, the communication of his grace and goodness is meant to be displayed through, can I say, imperfect, ragtag, hard to be at, wart-filled churches like us. This is magnificent. And then let's get into our text, Ephesians chapter four. Now we're gonna focus on verses 11 through 16, but let me just set us up because everything has context. Reuben walked us through this walk worthy of a calling. And let me just read verses seven through 10 then. He ended in verse seven last week, but let me just set it up for what we're gonna get into in verse 11 and following. It says that this grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this ability to walk in this way as Christians, as believers, his, Christ has gifted us with grace in order to do that. And why, why does he have the authority to do that? Well, verse 8 tells us, therefore it says, quoting an Old Testament passage now, applying it to the victorious, resurrected, ascended Jesus, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So this is an Old Testament passage, applying it to Jesus's resurrection and ascension. And it is a picture of a conquering king who is taking with him captors, prisoners of war, as it were. And because he is in complete authority over all things in his victory, he has this train of captives with him, and he's giving out the spoils of his victory to the people of his kingdom. That's the picture in verse 9. And Jesus is able to do that because he has defeated death and sin on the cross. And in verse 9, it says, in saying he ascended meaning to heaven, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth, meaning that he, in his incarnation, became from heaven to earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So I say that to get us to verse 11, to say that Jesus is the ascended, victorious king who has said that he has given gifts to the church. What are those gifts that he's given, and why has he given them? That's our text. Let's just look quickly at verses 11 through 16, just verse by verse, and then I want us to consider how this applies to us as a body. But before we do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this text. Help us to think deeply about it. Help me to communicate faithfully and pastorally with a spirit of love and encouragement and exhortation.
And Lord, may, may Jesus be magnified this morning and may we be built up as a church. May we look more like your son as a result of our time together. And if there are any friends in this room who do not know you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 11, Paul writes now, and he, the he being Christ, this risen ascended king who's, who's now giving gifts to his people, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So he's given these offices, these, these roles in the church. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. This is not the focus of this text, but what I think is going on here is that the focus is, is that Jesus is given specific roles in the church for the sake that we'll get to in just a minute of building up the church. Now, I don't want to make too much, but I think that the apostles and prophets are gifts that he's given to the church that had a one-time purpose in the history of the church through whom these people would be the men through whom the word of God came. And those were foundational gifts and they no longer exist because we have now the scriptures. And he's given evangelists, people with a particular gift to, to draw others to the Lord through the preaching of the gospel. And he's given shepherds and teachers, which I think really is sort of one pastors that will, that will shepherd the flock of God and build them up and shepherd them and equip them, which now gets us into the rest of this verse, which is what I want us to center on. Verse 12, why has he given these offices to the church? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So to equip, to train, to empower, to, to help disciple who the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Friends, that word saints, if you are a believer, applies to you. It's not just the, the most mature among us or, or some, some picture of somebody on a wall that has done great things for God in the past. If you are a believer, then the Bible, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is calling you a saint, somebody that was formerly dead this is true of you if you're a believer. You were formerly dead in your sin, and now you've been made alive, and now the righteousness of Christ is yours. Regardless of what you feel like, regardless of how much you may know about the scriptures, regardless of your, of your relative sanctification or maturity in the faith, the moment that you are born again, you are justified, your sins are forgiven, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and God now sees you as righteous, not because of your relative state of maturity or sanctification, but because of his son and his perfection, which is yours by faith in Christ Jesus. And so you are, scripturally speaking, theologically speaking, a saint. That's what you are if you're a believer. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live, I live, in the, I live in, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
And so God has given gifts to the church. He's given shepherds and teachers along with these other gifts in the history of the church, not to perform the ministry, not so that we can just get through a kind of slick Sunday morning service where everybody seems to be happy. Oh, that was wonderful. Let's go home now. Let's be mean to waitresses, take a nap, and watch football. But let's equip one another for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That we together, if you're a saint, if you're a Christian, you are part of the ministry team of your local church. That we would work to ministry. Listen to, what, listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, whole church, everybody, every member, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The point here is clear. This is not rocket surgery. (laughs) It's a joke. Come on, keep up. (laughs) Rocket science and brain surgery mixed together. It's clear. This is clear. God's given leaders to build the church up, not to perform for the church, not to do everything for the church, but for the equipping of the saints in all their varied levels of sanctification so that they would do the ministry and build up the body of Christ. The point here is that every believer is to be involved. Every believer is to be involved in strengthening their local church, helping other Christians follow Jesus more faithfully, and in some way helping to do their part to fulfill the Great Commission, to see the world as a mission field. It might not be Uganda. In fact, for the vast majority of us, it isn't. It's our street. It's our cubicle. It's our platoon. It's our child's nursery where we are an evangelist to that place that God has assigned us. And in very practical ways, ministry, I think one of the things about American culture is we tend to really value, I think, in a sort of idolatrous way, leadership. We have a kind of cult of leadership where everything has to be, and and, and certain Christians have actually made a little cottage industry of of leadership this, leadership that. And quite frankly, it's sort of sickening, honestly. And what it does is it appropriates a kind of attractional model of the world where bigger is better, which is the, the, I think, the undergirding value of American culture, and it applies it, and it, and it, and it infiltrates the hearts of pastors, and now they think of leadership as being a kind of slick CEO that can officiate everything really well, lead really efficiently, and grow a bigger, better church. When in reality, oftentimes, what that type of church culture does is actually just accumulate false converts because we're addicted to bigger, better, slicker, more charismatic leadership. That's not what is going on here in this text. It's organic, simple ministry. Ministry is not performed primarily on the stage. You know, my dad was a football coach, so I think in football analogies, this is just kind of the huddle where we're calling the play, but the actual play is when we leave this place. This is just like buck sweep to the right. You're pulling guards, just hand it to this guy, let him run. I could do a Vince Lombardi imitation right now if you want me to run to daylight, but this isn't the actual play. The play is when we break the huddle and we go, and that's what Paul has in mind here. 
verse 13, until the goal here, so there's this building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, until we're going somewhere, we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, we could settle down and think very deeply about just this one verse, but I think what Paul has in mind here is not ultimately heaven, although that is the trajectory of Paul's letters and much of the New Testament, but to a kind of in this life maturity where we are, we attain a level of sanctification and Christian maturity where we have a unity, we understand good doctrine and we know who Christ is, we're mature and we, we have a measure of fullness in Christ. We're, we're, we're like people that aren't just flimsy little saplings that are tossed to and fro, which we'll get to in a second, but we're, we're oaks. We're the type of men and women who can bear shade for people around us and we can be leaned on for the sake of ministry. That's the goal of the ministry of the church to produce those kinds of people. Why? Verse 14, one of the reasons why, Paul says, so that We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul is aware then and now that the world is not neutral. The world is against us. And there are winds of bad doctrine in and outside of the church. I mean, friends, don't be, don't be, everybody has a doctrine. A doctrine is just a set of beliefs by which you navigate, it's a worldview, it's a lens by which you look at the world. And people in the church and people out of the church, the whole world has a doctrine. And Paul is saying here that he wants the church to be so involved with caring for each other, ministering to one another, every member to be part of this, so that we would be strengthened, so that our roots would grow deep, so that we would be strong, so that we'd be able to bear shade and bear fruit, And one of the effects of this is that we wouldn't be blown by the winds of our culture so easily. We wouldn't be so easily uh, tossed to and fro like somebody in the backseat of a car that's just swerving all over the road without a seatbelt and you're just getting tossed to and fro. Paul does not want us to be like that. And of course, Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, who's Christ, who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love is a wonderful phrase. This doesn't just mean that you share your opinions in a kind of Christianese, sanctified sort of way. It means that you are willing, we are willing as a church to care deeply enough for one another that when we see things in each other's lives that are out of step with the good truth of the scriptures, we love one another enough because we have this kind of collective responsibility for one another that we say, hey, brother, sister, where are you? I haven't seen you. What's going on in your life? What about this? What about that? And we have such a kind of humility about us that it's not a legalism or a judgmentalism, but it's a kind of sweet love for one another because we care for one another. And as Springer read from us from 1 Corinthians 12, We are connected to one another as a body. 
And so the hand is very concerned with what the foot is doing. We, we're connected. We have the same circular system, we're, cir- circulation system. We're connected to the blood. We're connected to the head. We are all together. So what you're doing matters to me. What I'm doing should matter to you. And how we all are walking this walk together is of utmost importance because we are not merely individuals that just gather here occasionally on a Sunday. We are The biblical picture in the New Testament is a spiritual body that cannot live without each other. If you were to chop off the hand, it would wither and die. And that's the picture here. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, he just continues this beautiful metaphor, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, friends, there's just a beautiful filling out of the, of the metaphor. We're a body. We, we cannot exist as individuals. But we are often prone to drink the spirit of our American culture age, which is which the highest value in our broken, fallen culture is individualism and my rights. And although there may be some benefit in that in a common grace sort of way where, of course, we don't want the government to come in and encroach on our rights and all that kind of stuff, oftentimes that wrongly gets translated and filters down into our hearts spiritually to where we see ourselves as individuals who can't, who you cannot trespass my sovereign rule of my own heart. And we are not beholden to anybody because by golly, we're Americans. And that is running the opposite direction of this picture of the Christian life in Ephesians chapter four. Friends, we need each other and all of us have a part to play. So I wanna end this with just a brief reflection and just consider areas of grace. So translation, things that I think we're doing really well and areas of growth, things that I think we need to grow in and do better. Areas of grace and areas of growth. First, three areas of grace. I am so thrilled that this church is so eager for scriptural truth. Eager for scriptural truth. Um, I am um, at that stage in pastoral ministry where younger pastors from kind of some networks that I'm part of that are thinking about planting churches are starting to call me and ask about what, you know, how's, how'd you plant Crosspoint and all that kind of stuff. And many of you may not know this story, but uh, when we planted this church 16, 17 years ago, I was going through a complete, on the fly, as we were planting the church, a complete theological transformation from really one end of the spectrum theologically to another recommendation to any young men in here that are ever going to plant a church, you should have your theology figured out actually before you plant the church, not as. It's kind of like, like a little kid getting in a car. You see those videos where a little eight-year-old starts driving his dad's car and somehow's on the interstate. Like, he doesn't know what he's doing, but somehow he found the gas pedal. That's kind of how we started Crosspoint. 
But one thing that has marked this church is as I stumbled into a particular theological perspective that exalts the utter and exhaustive sovereignty of God, a, a reformed view of the gospel, if you will, if you will, and that has a particular conviction about what it means to be a man and a woman and how that relates to life and ministry in the church and who can be pastors and elders. It's a, it's a theological position called complementarianism, meaning that only men biblically should be uh, pastors, elders of the church, not because women are any less than, but because we think that's the design of God in the scriptures. And a host of other particular theological concepts that at least in our broader church culture would be really controversial, have just been so eagerly accepted by you as, as we have taught from this perspective. This is a church that loves to open their Bibles and wrestle with truth. And it, even if it's a hard thing, we say, well, you know, the Lord has said it. And so I'm going to wrestle and believe it. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. And you listen, you listen to long sermons through books of the Bible. We don't bounce around and talk about seven steps to how to be happy on a Tuesday. We just open up the Bible and we preach through books of the Bible. We've been in John for the whole year and we're not even halfway through. We, we, we took, a, remember we took a hot minute in Romans, remember that? So there's an eagerness for scriptural truth, and praise God for that. Praise God. Second area of grace is we have so many, so many mature men and women with a heart for others. When we started this church, Jennifer and I were 34 years old, and we were probably by a decade the oldest people in the church. And it was uh, Paul Fincher and a few of his college friends. It's basically... <laughs> And we've grown generationally, and we've grown in maturity, and we have so many. This church is full of gracious, fruitful, warm-hearted men and women who've been through the ringer, who have buried children, I know what that's like, who've suffered the pain of a dissolved marriage and know what that's like. Who still have children that are away from the Lord and know the pain of that. And they are eager to share their lives with other people, younger people. I think of Psalm 145. So many faces come to my mind. I think of Psalm 145. It says, one generation shall commend your works to another. This is a wonderful place to plant yourself in and plant yourself next to just ordinary Christians who have been through the ringer and are standing by God's grace and are ready to give their lives away. Thirdly, I think an area of grace is that we just have a sincere desire for the advance of the gospel locally and abroad. Just yesterday, our youth went to uh, safe house ministries to care for people in terrible situations. We, 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 we sent out a group of about 80 people from this church two or three years ago to plant Midtree Church as, uh, under Pastor Will Hawk, and that church has grown and is doing wonderfully. And that was a sacrifice to our church to send 80 members that were 
many of them involved in so many other things. And it was, it was like, gosh, ooh, that, that hurt to send those 80 people. But it was a joy. And we were glad to do it as a church because, because of all the fruit that's being born now in mid-tree. Praise God. And, and, and we could spend a lot of our time just telling you about how generous you've been as a church and how we've been able to help churches around the world, Uganda, Haiti, Kosovo, all these places, India. I just, just got a, an email from our dear pastor friend in India, whose name I won't mention for security purposes, but they're just in dire straits. He was called into the police station in his state in India for preaching the gospel in question for that. And we've been supporting this brother through the pandemic. You have been supporting this brother because his church cannot gather and we are helping to keep him sustained through this because of your generosity. And it's not just abroad. We're not pitting local versus the nations. Friends, there's, there's work to be done. There's, there's, there's churches in our city that need, that need help. There's revitalizing. We've got young men on this staff that we want to send. And there's just this eagerness in this church to say that it's not about us. Let's do it. Let's do it. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Those are just areas of grace and they're fruits of the gospel that has that is taken hold of our hearts. Thirdly, or secondly, no, areas of growth. How can we grow in this vision of becoming a body that's working together? Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about more areas of grace, and certainly there's more things we need to do better at, but this is just a broad sort of 30,000-foot view. One is a more clear, consistent communication of priorities by leadership. And so really I'm speaking about primarily myself here in this as the leader of the elders. This church is not led by me as the lead pastor. I am one of 12. I have the same authority, equal authority with these other brothers. But I do recognize my role as the lead elder and as the planting pastor that uh, much of the responsibility for uh, culture and vision casting rests on me with the help of these brothers, certainly. And I think that over the past few years, one of the things that marked our life together as a church early on was that we would always sort of explain why we're doing something and what we're doing and why we're doing this and not that. And I think we have, I have primarily not done as good a job over the last few years doing that. And it's created a little bit of kind of fuzziness and mission creep. And I need to do a better job of helping to apply the truth that we go through week by week, not just to personal aspects of our lives, but our life collectively as a church and why things that we should be about and things that we don't necessarily need to get into. And I take responsibility for this. I could spend a lot of time talking about it, but I just want to put that up front and to say that uh, I need to grow in that area. And by God's grace, I'm, I hope to. Secondly, I think for some resilience in response to the pandemic. And I want to be pastoral and gracious, but speak the truth in love. Uh, it has taken some of you longer, and I realize I'm kind of a bit preaching to the choir. You're here. And I realize that many of the people that I have in mind are people that have just kind of faded away. A part of being a body together is that you would know the heart of your pastors, teachers, shepherds, elders, so that you can communicate this heart to your brothers and sisters who maybe you haven't seen in a while, is that there have been some amongst our membership 
that were previously committed, very active, and now they are very irregular in attendance or involvement in the church, if at all. Some of them, I think the FBI couldn't find. You know, friends, I, I don't mean to get into um, a whole discussion of this strange vortex of events that have hit us over the past 18 months of political turmoil, racial turmoil, pandemic turmoil, now response to the pandemic turmoil, masks, vaccines. We're all going to have opinions about those things. But I will say, and, and some people have different life experiences. There are some people in this church who have lost parents and dear loved ones to the virus. I am not negating that at all. There are some people in this church who are immunocompromised and have very understandable reasons for being maybe more cautious than others. But friends, there's, there's, there's something more fearful than dying from a virus. And it's being separated from the flock of God and making yourself spiritually vulnerable so that the wolf that prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour would so discourage and pluck you away from the sheepfold that you would be in a position where you never thought you would be. Friends, that is far more dangerous than a virus that may take your life. And my fear is, is that some have bought into a culture of fear. Do you realize that there are media outlets and there are political parties, both of them, who traffic in making you fearful of your cultural opponent's perspective? And there are discussions about who's right and who's wrong. I understand that. But do you realize that you are drinking the broken cistern of a culture that wants you to imbibe their message, which is almost always contrary to the courageous life of faith that a believer is called to in the Bible? And so I think some have been somewhat unresilient in this cultural moment. And I think this resilience goes, goes both ways. I think some of us who are th right now thinking, yeah, say it, Brad, say it. <laughs> I think maybe some of those people that have that attitude haven't been resilient in their patience and their long-suffering with their brothers and sisters. So friends, we're all in need of God's grace here. If at the end of this cultural moment, whenever it is, or maybe it won't, maybe we'll just kind of be here until Jesus, I don't know. But at the end of this, what's the end game? For you to be proven right? Or for the aroma of Christ to be stronger in your life and in your local church? Thirdly, and I think this is related, is that for some, and I think this is, I think for some, just the pandemic and just the cultural moment and maybe just the ease of life has just sort of taken hold. For some, a slow creep into comfort and convenience. As we've grown from a church plant 
where we met in my living room for a few first few months as a core group to meeting at the old mountain schoolhouse up in Mountain Hill Schoolhouse up in Harris County where you know we had to break up and set up and tear down every day every Sunday to meeting here in this building when we moved in here in 2010 there was just this kind of energy like man everybody's got to do something right but now we're bigger now we're more established now we've got you know kind of things hopping a little bit and in the life of every church, especially church plants like us that become now established churches, there is this kind of slow creep where now there's not just this sort of unspoken sense that everybody needs to pitch in. Now there's this sense where you can kind of come and just sort of settle in and receive. And this is a two-way street. We as a church leadership need to do a better job of, 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 of clearing pathways for you to get involved. But part of it, part of it is, is just you Every member in the church seeing like, listen, I don't have to be told. I don't, need to, I don't need to have everything made perfect and comfortable for me. And I don't need somebody else to do all the work for me. But by golly, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to sit next to somebody. I'm going to say hello. I'm going to get to know people. I'm going to show up. I'm going to prioritize. I'm going to love people. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to do it. The call to the life of following Christ is not a call to comfort and convenience to where everything must be rolled out like a red carpet for you so that everything's perfect. Well, if they got children's ministry, if they have kid keepers, if there's this, if the songs I play, if it's a topic, then I'll come. If my kid's not playing travel ball, if everything's, if the weather's right, everything. Friends, if you live your life for that, like that, you will never be a fruitful Christian. And you will always be disappointed in the church because it will never be able to cater to all of your needs. And it wasn't intended to. This picture in the Bible is that you, together with all of the other brothers and sisters, don't create this culture where everybody's fancies are tickled, but where we all grow together and lift up Christ. Why is this so important? And I end with this. Friends, because the Lord has us here for a reason. And the reason isn't just to be tickled with decent preaching and good doctrine. The reason is, is that we would establish a beachhead for healthy churches, gospel preaching, Bible churches in our city, which has been so poorly served. Can I say this? That has been so poorly served by the gospel in our city over the, over the decades. We are the second largest city in Georgia, and we have just a handful of churches that preach the gospel. And I don't say that in a sort of arrogant, judgmental way, friends. It's the truth. We need more churches that take the word seriously, that lift up the glory of God, that humble man, that make it about Christ and his advance and not just cultural Christianity where you rub shoulders with people that will help you advance in work. That's not gospel culture. And Columbus needs more churches. It doesn't just need one big church. It needs churches like Crosspoint to be a kind of seedbed for the growth of healthy churches in our area. 
And in order to be that type of church, we just need people to reinvigorate their view of this call to life together that Paul outlines for us in Ephesians chapter 11 through 16. What's at stake? Why are we here? To make much of Jesus in our time and place and to be a seedbed for the advance of the gospel in our city and wherever else the Lord may take it. So what's your posture, dear one? Are you holding on? Are you just getting a little Christian scratch? Is it socially convenient for you to be to claim to be a believer in the deep south? Does it give you social collateral? Does it make you feel better about yourself? Or are you catching a vision of what it means to be a Christian that gives yourself away to others? It gets in a relationship with people that are hard to love, that pushes through inconveniences, that isn't so easily offended. You know, some of the most mature Christians are people that are not easily offended. You may not know a lot about the Bible. You may be a butter knife. You may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. But if you got thick skin, come on, let's do life together. Everybody's always so, we live in an age of outrage where everybody's so upset about everything. Well, you know what? If you live your life like that, you're going to be a Scrooge before the end of the day. Give us people. Lord, make us people that love one another like this call to love one another that Paul outlines for us. I'm going to read you a quote. Um, have you heard of Charles Spurgeon? He's <laughs> He was this preacher back in the... 1800s, Baptist, had a beard. That's not why I'm growing a beard. I'm just <laughs> teaching these young guys how it's done here. <clears throat> Listen to what Spurgeon wrote in a sermon preached on April 5th, 1891, just, just very shortly before he died on 2 Corinthians 8, 5. And it's a quote about the church. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found the one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Hmm. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for you not joining it. If you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is a nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home. For Christ's family. Let me pray. Lord, 
Thank you for this passage. Thank you for Paul's picture is given to him by the Spirit. Thank you for the many, many, many ways that this church so personifies and embodies what Paul is speaking about here. And for the ways that we need to grow, Lord, give us more grace. Give us more grace. Because what's at stake is souls. What's at stake is the advance of the kingdom and the work of the gospel in our time and place. Lord, help us with this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.